Hey, good morning. No, you have to do better than that. Good morning. It's so good to see you. My name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor of New Life East. It's such a joy to be here. I was telling my wife, Mandy, we walked through the doors this morning at about 8.30 and I just went, oh my gosh, I'm so happy to be in this place. You guys worship with such passion and intensity and the spirit of God is among us. So I can't think of a better place to be. Good to be in this house this morning. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, to the book of Matthew chapter five. And we are in the middle of a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody say the Sermon on the Mount. Say, why do they call it the Sermon on the Mount? Because it's a sermon that Jesus preached on a mountain. (laughs) And that is as simple as anything gets in the Bible. But it's the Sermon on the Mount. The Jesus classic teaching on life in the kingdom. What does the Father require? Who is God trying to make us to be? And as we've seen, as we've journeyed these last bunch of weeks, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, not with instructions, but he gives us the Beatitudes. You remember that? Then the Beatitudes are all about, this is Jesus' way of opening our eyes to the reality of the kingdom, helping us see that there's a different value system and a different way of looking at the world at place. And then what he does is he begins to take us into what God requires. And one of the things that he says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, is that he says that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Jesus says you will by no means enter into the kingdom of God. What does Jesus mean? That righteousness in the kingdom is not just about us white knuckling it and kind of trying harder to be better humans, but it's about letting God get underneath the surface to where evil things spring out. God wants to change our hearts, right? And so as we've journeyed now through the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen Jesus take some of the laws of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and go, hey, you've heard that it was said, you know, for instance, don't murder. But I'm telling you that murder actually grows up out of something in your heart. So you've heard, don't murder, but I'm telling you not to be angry with your brother and sister. And you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But Jesus says, but I'm telling you, don't even look upon another human being to desire them because that's the thing out of which adultery springs. So what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's really taking all of those things that make human life so painful and awful and miserable, and he's halting the arrest of hell in human society by forming a people who have exposed their lives and their hearts to the living God. So anger and misguided sexuality, those things hurt human life. And now he begins to take us into another thing that really does harm human life. And that is the issue of our speech. Everybody say our speech. And the Bible knows that our speech is really powerful. The writer of Proverbs says this, that death and life are in the power of the, some of you might know it, death and life are in the tongue. Proverbs 18, 21. You see how that's a little rhyme? You just learned a Bible verse this morning. Congratulations, church. But we know that our tongues are powerful for life or for death. And Jesus also knows that. And so the next move that he makes in the Sermon on the Mount is to address the issue of our tongues. This is Matthew 5 and verse 33. If you're there, say, I'm there. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, don't break your oath. But fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. But I'm telling you, don't swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And don't even swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. And anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, let's pray. 
So Jesus, we welcome you here. And actually, we thank you that you're already here. For you said that wherever two or three are gathered together in your name, that you'd be there in the midst of them. And so we claim your presence among us this morning as our teacher, as our guide, as our helper. The psalmist said over and over again, show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and lead me for your God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Jesus, we're calling upon you this morning. Again, we're asking that you would help us. We're asking that you would teach us. We're asking that you would show us where we're making a ruin of our lives and the lives of people around us. We pray, lead us in the everlasting way this morning. Come. We say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. So Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, don't break your oath. Everybody say oath. I'm from Wisconsin, so I say oath like that. It's this long journey through the vowel is what it is. So don't break your oath, but keep before the Lord the, do you remember it? We just read it a second ago. (laughs) Don't break your oath, but keep before the Lord the vow that you have made. Oaths and vows is what we're talking about this morning. They're related concepts, but they're just slightly different, but we do know what they are, okay? So what's an oath? An oath is place your left hand on the Bible, raise your right hand, and do you solemnly swear to tell the, the, and nothing? So what's that? That's an oath. Okay, so what you're saying is you're trying to authenticate the things that are about to come out of your mouth. I swear by heaven that so far as I'm able to know the truth, I'm gonna represent the truth to you. That's an oath, okay? A vow, slightly different thing. So Mandy, my wife uh, here is sitting on the front row. We're going on 23 years of marriage. 23 years, August 6, 2000, and we stood up in front of, thank you for that. Actually, your applause is for her. She's a very persevering woman. And 23 years ago, we stood up in front of a group of people and we made solemn vows. We said for better or for worse, in sickness or in, to love and to, until what? Death to you part, solemn promises we made about our behavior in front of God and all these witnesses. So that's a vow, that's a pledge about what we're going to do. And as it turns out in the kind of world that we live in, oaths and vows are really important. And the Bible knows this too. Here's the book of Leviticus chapter 26. Don't swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. What's the Lord saying there? He's saying, look, when you make an oath in my name, don't swear falsely by it. Don't you use your words to mislead other people, okay? So you're gonna make a mockery of my name if you do that. Here's the book of Numbers. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. What's that? That's a vow. So if you're going to say that you're going to do the thing, and especially if you swear by heaven to do it, you better follow through on it. And here, upping the ante altogether, this is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. The Lord says, fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oath. Swear in his name. Like God won't even let you swear by anything else in the Old Testament. You don't get to swear by your head. You don't get to swear by the earth. You don't get to swear by your mama's grave. You're only swearing by God's name. This is God's way. It's like this remedial effort to try to curtail language that's become destructive. And when you think about it, two of the 10 commandments actually have to do with our speech, don't they? You remember the third commandment? Thou shalt not. Welcome to catechism class, ladies and gentlemen. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Do you know what the Hebrew actually says there? 
The Hebrew actually says you will not carry the name of the Lord your God into emptiness. That our God is a God of reality and a God of truth. So don't take his name and take it into places that it doesn't belong. Or you think about the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. The scripture knows that our speech is capable of so much destruction. And so the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is trying to curtail it. So you might expect Jesus who comes among us to help pull human society back together to bring the kingdom among us, for him to say, hey, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, don't break your oath, but fulfill your vows. And you might expect Jesus to say, that's great advice. So go get it, guys. Keep trying, do better, you know, and all of that. And instead, he doesn't do that at all. What does he do? He throws a grenade in the whole thing. He says, I'm telling you, don't even swear at all. Either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, you can't even make one hair white or black. All you're supposed to do is let your yes be and your no be. And anything beyond this, Jesus says, comes from the evil one. The question is, what is the problem with oaths and vows? What is the problem with oaths and vows? Do we have any homeowners in the room this morning? How many of you own a home? Okay. Now, I remember when Mandy and I uh, bought our first home many years ago. We were living in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And we were renting this beautiful little red brick, three bed, one bath, 1,100 square foot ranch style house, perfect little house to raise our little family in. And we were renting it for like super cheap, like seven or 800 bucks a month maybe. And the owners came to us and they said, hey, we don't really want to hold on to the house anymore. We would like to sell it. You guys have been great tenants. If you like the house, maybe you want to buy it from us. And so we said, how much are you selling it for? And they said, $100,000. What? Do you remember those days? Lord, help us. $100,000. So we did the math, you know, and we worked it out and tried to figure out, like, can we make this work in our budget and all this stuff? And it turns out that it would work in our budget. And so in my simple little mind, I was 26 years old. I just thought, well, this will be easy. We've been living here for a little while and they want to sell us the house. So I don't know, we'll get a bank involved and it'll be a couple little handshakes and we'll sign a piece of paper and, you know, we'll all live happily ever after. And so we made an appointment to go to the land and title company and sit down to transfer the ownership and do all this stuff. And they brought in a stack of papers this high. Andrew Arndt, Andrew Burden Arndt, do you solemnly swear? Andrew Burden Arndt, ABA, you know, date, date, sign, date, sign, date, name, 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 sign, date, sign. 19 days later, we walked out of there as the proud owners of that house, and I'm not sure it was worth the trouble. I mean, why, why, why do we have to sign all of those papers to make a transaction like that, ladies and gentlemen? Oaths and vows and oaths and vows and oaths and vows. Why? Because our speech is fundamentally untrustworthy. We can't be relied upon to say we're going to do the things that we said we were going to do. And this problem actually starts with us very early on in our lives. I remember several years later, uh, we have four kids and our oldest two boys, Ethan and Gabe, were three years old. Ethan was three and Gabe was two years old, respectively. And so Mandy came to me one night, she was making dinner and she goes, hey, honey, the boys are down in the basement playing. And she goes, hey, honey, can you tell the boys that we're going to eat in about five or 10 minutes and they need to clean up the basement and wash up and then we'll eat dinner. And I said, sure. So I yelled downstairs and I go, hey, guys. I said, we're going to eat dinner in a couple minutes. Mom wants you to clean up. Can you do that for me? And they both yelled up, yeah. So I want to show you a picture real quick. It should be on the screen over here. So this right here, this is Gabriel James Arndt. This is our number two. Just look at that face, man. Whew. 
That's like there's a, like a beatitude for that. You know what I mean? Like blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And I, look at that face. There's no, can, can there be guile behind those eyes? Can there be any willing intent to mislead or deceive in the heart of this child here? So 30 seconds later, that face is at the top of the stairs. And I got down real low and I called Gabe Gaby at the time. And I said, Gaby, did you clean up the basement? And he said, yeah. (laughs) And right then the voice of his dutiful older brother cascaded up behind him. No, he didn't, Ethan said, he's lying. So I got down even lower so as not to intimidate the young man. But I said, I said, Gaby, are you lying to me? And you know what he said to me? I like lying. I like lying. Can we put that picture back? I like, li- I like lying. I like lying. He said those words. He said them to me. He said them right to my face. He didn't say, oh, dad, I'm so sorry. You caught me in one there. I'll head back downstairs. He just said, I like lying. And it was a very profound and distressing parenting moment. Those of you that are parents, you've faced this dilemma before. How do I convey to a child that it's existentially critical that there be a sort of correspondence between what comes out of your mouth and the actual state of reality. How do you do that? <laughs> the whole way that we inquire language in the first place is that we're trying to get things, stuff that we want, and avoid things that cause us harm or pain. It's all utilitarian. We don't actually use it to tell the truth. And this continues well into our adult life. And this is why Jesus says, what he says about the oaths and the vows. It's not that oaths and vows are bad or wrong. If they were, we couldn't get credit cards or houses and marriage as we know it would cease to exist. It's just that for a people that can't be trusted with their speech in the first place, oaths and vows don't actually fix anything. If you can't be trusted in the first place, I don't know why you're gonna be trusted to sign your name to anything. Jesus is trying to get us back to reality. The great New Testament scholar R.T. France writes this, He says that Jesus' prohibition of swearing is based on the assumption that God requires truthfulness. A simple yes or no should be all that is needed. And as soon as it's necessary to bolster it with an oath, to persuade others to believe what it said, the ideal of transparent truthfulness has been compromised. There's question marks now about what we say. The great Jewish historian Josephus, writing about a group of people in the first century known as the Essenes, said this, that every declaration they make is even stronger than an oath. And indeed, they avoid swearing at all since they regard it as worse than perjury on the grounds that anyone who cannot be believed without an appeal to God is already condemned. If people can't believe the words that are, going, that are coming out of your mouth, you're already in trouble. And it doesn't make it any better to swear by heaven, which is why Jesus says, simply let your yes be and your no be And anything beyond this comes from where? It comes from the evil one. And Jesus knows what he's talking about. 
Think about the way that the scripture talks about the world that we live in. Genesis chapter one, God speaks the cosmos into existence by the truthful word of his mouth and this life-giving, flourishing creation comes into being. And when the enemy comes in among us to begin to pollute and spoil God's world, what does he do? Did God really say, don't eat from that tree? He takes words and he starts to twist them. He compromises the ideal of transparent truthfulness. And the moment the first humans accept the premise that that the enemy puts in front of them, the creation is plunged into chaos. So when Jesus says, simply let your yes be and your no be and anything beyond this comes from, he knows what he's talking about. Friends, Jesus doesn't save our speech by making a few minor repairs to it, but he saves our speech by rebuilding it from the ground up. So the question is, what does Christian speech look like? Let me give you a little 101 in how Christians talk and four points here. Number one, Christian speech grows out of reverent silence. Everybody say reverent silence. You ever had a moment in your life where the silence around you was so profound and powerful that it almost felt like it would be a blasphemy to break it with words. Think about those times that you have had in the presence of God in prayer. Maybe you were reading the scriptures and sinking your heart deep into the presence of God, pouring out your heart before the Lord. And then all of a sudden you got real still and you sensed the spirit of the living God come in that profound Silence, or I think about some of you moms. My mom was a notoriously early riser. I think about some of you moms, those times maybe that you wake up early in the morning before any of the noise or the chaos of the house has started and you take a few deep breaths just laying in your bed there, that sound of silence around you. I think about you men in the room who are hunters and you'll go off in the woods for three days at a time, four days at a time. Some of you go off for weeks at a time and you'll be marching through the woods and there is that sort of like incredibly dense, profound echoing silence all around you. And it just feels like it would be wrong to break that silence. Do you know what that silence is? It's the sound of God. And the scripture tells us this. There's this brilliant moment in the Old Testament, the book of 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah is on the run from Jezebel and he goes to Horeb, the mountain of God, and he hides in this cave. And the Lord calls him and tells him to stand on the face of the mountain because the Lord is going to pass by. And the scripture says that a great and powerful wind came and it tore the mountain apart. But the Lord was not in the wind. And then a great fire came and it burned across the face of the mountain, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then after that, there came an earthquake, the scripture says, but the Lord wasn't, think about that. The Lord, not in the noise of the wind or the noise of the fire or the noise of the earthquake. But after that, the scripture says, there came the sound as of a gentle whisper. Do you know what the Hebrew says? It's the sound of silence. And it's from that place that God spoke to Elijah straight out of the silence. Christians are people who are aware that the world that we live in is full of dangerous words, toxic words, loud words, ugly words. And so we're the kind of people who are determined never to say anything that doesn't somehow amplify the sense of holy silence all around us. 
One of the great poets of our era, Wendell Berry said, try to make a poem that doesn't disturb the silence out of which it came. Can the words that you say, the words that are coming out of your mouth, can they live in the holiest places? Can they dwell in those silences? Do they amplify a sense of reverence and the fear of God? If they don't, bite your tongue. Christian speech, number one, grows out of reverent silence. Number two, I would say this to you this morning, that Christian speech is simple. Everybody say simple. And it's sincere. Everybody say sincere. Simple and sincere. It's not dressed up in flowery language. It's not all this stuff that makes us think that we're better than we are. It's simple and it's sincere. And I've been in the church long enough, and some of you have as well, that you know that as a body of believers, we tend to struggle with this. You know, Christians tend to struggle, struggle with simplicity and sincerity. I think about all of the times that I have walked into church and I've seen somebody maybe that I hadn't seen in a while, or I'm getting to know somebody for, you know, and you say, so you say, good morning, how you doing? And what do they say to you? They say, oh brother, I'm blessed and highly favored. You go, okay, where's this one going? And they say, oh, I'm the head and not the tail. I'm above only and not beneath. I'm always at the top, never at the bottom. The enemies that are coming at me from one direction, they're fleeing from me in seven. Glory, hallelujah, amen. And I don't know about you, but when that happens to me, I go, I'm still waiting for the human to show up. Are you some kind of glory, hallelujah, amen, cyborg that showed up in front of me? Where is the human being? And when I asked you, how you were doing, I actually did mean it. I was interested in how you were doing. I wanted to hear a human being. I wanted to be able to meet you where you are, but you gave me this whole thing about how you're blessed and highly favored and the top and not the bottom and all of that stuff. And I think what you're doing is I think that you're trying to hide how you're really doing from me which means that you don't really want fellowship with me, which means that somehow communion between us has broken down. And in some way that must be a sin against the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is always trying to lead us into fellowship with one another. But we keep using our speech, our flowery language, our adorned language to mislead and get people away from us when God wants us to come together. Friends, it's so refreshing when we can be honest with one another. I had a staff member plop down in my office a couple weeks ago we had a meeting that we were supposed to have about something that we were working on together. And the staffer plops down in front of me. And I took a deep breath and I said, hey, how are you doing? And do you know what he said? Not great. My wife and I are struggling with this thing and we're facing this decision and we've got all this stuff swirling around us and it's really hard. And I didn't come here to talk to you about this stuff. And I said, but this is the stuff that we must talk about. Can we just take a few minutes? And he said, sure. And he kept pouring out his heart. And as he was pouring out his heart, my heart was cut by that. And all of a sudden I've got holy tears streaming down my face as I'm entering into sympathy with this person. We've found each other now in the truth. And I said, can we pray? And he said, I would love to pray. And so we did right there in my office. God, would you help? God, we're looking to you. We're looking to the Lord our God until you show us mercy. Would you please come among us and show us mercy? And when the prayer was done, we looked at each other with clear eyes. We saw each other. Heart touched heart, spirit touched spirit, human touched human. And that means that somehow the body of Christ was built up in that, friends. 
Can we take the risk of being honest with one another about, about what's going on in our hearts and in our lives, but we use our language to mislead in so many ways. Christian speech is simple and sincere. I'll tell you, there's another way that we do this in the church. You could probably multiply dozens of ways that we violate this principle. But I think about all of the times we got lots of Christian business people in the house here. You're in business. Uh, you are a Christian business person by definition. And I think about all those times over the years, Mandy and I like have gotten a Facebook message from somebody and it'll say something like this. It'll say, dear Andrew and Mandy, I was praying about you the other day and my heart is warmed by that because I love being prayed for. And they'll say, and the Lord really laid you on my heart and my heart is also warmed by that because not only do I love being prayed for, but I love being on somebody else's heart. And so this Facebook message is off to a really great start. And then it will continue with, and I feel like the Lord is leading me to tell you about this product that I sell. Jesus have mercy. <laughs> and man, Lord knows I love being on people's hearts and I will take prayer as the day is long, six days a week and multiple times on Sunday. Pray for me now and at the hour of my death. I will take all of that. But do not in the name of the high and holy God, try to sell me your product. Yeah, you can give God praise for that this morning. We got a commandment for that, ladies and gentlemen. The third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. If you got a product for me that you think is a good product, just say, I've got a product that I think you might like and don't tangle God's name up in it. And you know why? Because when you tangle God's name up with it, you have tried to manipulate me. You didn't know that you were doing it, but you tried to manipulate me. You got God involved with it and now, if I reject your product, I'm rejecting, and God knows I don't wanna reject God. Maybe just leave God out of it. And maybe just trust that if God is the God of truth, and if this product would truly be a good product for me, God is capable of working in the simplicity of your offer to me about it. Frederick Dale Bruner, another great New Testament scholar says that Jesus seeks to make our speech simpler, less exaggerated, more down to earth, and even less outwardly spiritual, less filled with spiritual formulas. Just talk straight with one another and see what God does with that. And so Christian speech grows out of reverent silence. And Christian speech is simple and sincere. And Christian speech number three is honest. Everybody say honest. And it's, it's both honest and it's kind. And it's both of those in the same Degree. Christian speech is honest and kind. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, Paul writes, instead of behaving like the pagans behave, Paul writes, speaking the truth in, the truth in love. What happens? We in all things grow up to become the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. When the truth is spoken in love, we flourish. Similarly, 2 John verse 3, John writes, grace, mercy, and peace don't those sound like great things? How many of you want grace, mercy, and peace in your life? From God the Father, from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us. Where are they with us? In truth and love. And unfortunately, we struggle with this, don't we, friends? We got lots of people out there who are just warriors for the truth. They say, I'm a straight shooter is what they tell you. I just call them like I see them. That's what I do. 
And uh, that's one way to say it. It might also be that you have no filter is what's the problem with you. And so anything that you think, you just spout off and you think that you're doing God a big favor just by saying your opinions about everything under the sun. And I got news for you. You're not doing God a favor. You're speaking the truth all the time. You really struggle with love. But you know, our God, the scripture says, God is, God is love. Which means that if you speak the truth without love, you've spoken the truth without who? Without God. Which means that to speak the truth without love is actually to speak a lie. You got to speak the truth in love. That's how we grow. But similarly, there are others among us that we struggle with the other side of it. We go, I don't want to get in anybody's business. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to make anybody mad. So I just say things that keep the peace and keep us all nice and wonderful. And truth then leaks out of all of your relationships, which means that you can't actually love one another the way that you're called to love one another because our love for one another is based on the truth. Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, said it like this, that truth is what makes love possible and love makes the truth bearable. You ever had anybody in your life that was willing to speak the truth in love to you? They really did genuinely love you, but they saw that there was something going on in your life that was not right. And so they took the risk and they said, hey, look, I'm not trying to get all up in your business and I don't want to offend you, but I see this thing that's happening with you. And I don't know if you realize this, but every time you do this thing, it has this result. And I think you might want to just take a step back and reevaluate how you're doing that thing. And I might recommend that you ever had anybody that's done that for you? You know, in my life, the times the people have spoken the truth in love to me, it's, they've changed my life. It made me a better human being. It's what we're called to be for one another. And we're not just called to be that, by the way, for one another in the church, but we're also called to be that in the life of society. And I have people say to me all the time, they'll say, Pastor, I hear you advocate all the time for grace and mercy and peace and that we're supposed to be kinder to people and all of that. But are you saying that we shouldn't speak our mind about what's happening in society or culture or government? And I'll say to them all the time, no, you must speak your minds. As we live in a world now where there's little truth and there's little love, the people of God are the folks that need to show up and speak the truth in love. But the question is, when you show up in the life of society with the truth, are you turning up the light of our society or are you just turning up the heat in our society? And we got a lot of Christians that in the name of speaking the truth, what they're doing is they're just dialing up the level of emotion in our culture, but they're not dialing up the level of wisdom in our culture. And so the culture now, all of the anger of it is amplified because the people of God showed up. That's not our call. Our call is to help people see and discern truth from lies and truth from error. You got to be there turning up the dial on the light, not just the heat. And you also, and this one's bonus, you also have to be willing to show up in the conversation, willing to entertain the outside possibility. This is distinctive mark of Christians. I'm about to blow your mind here but you're willing to entertain the outside possibility that you might be wrong. Somebody got slain in the spirit over that one somewhere. Can you imagine what would happen if the people of God were like that, genuinely? 
And we should always be willing to admit that there's a possibility that we're wrong because we are the folks who believe that we are sinners who have not yet been fully sanctified by grace. Our intellect has not yet been fully redeemed by grace. So we ought to be the ones who are more than willing to show up in the conversation and put forward our opinion and have somebody say, well, you might consider X, Y, and Z. And we listen to that and we go, huh? Well, I never thought of it that way before. You bring up a great point. And now, watch this. Do you know what has happened? Public intelligence has risen. We could do this, ladies and gentlemen, because we're willing to speak the truth in love, which also includes humility. And so Christian speech grows out of reverent silence. And Christian speech is simple and sincere. Christian speech is honest and kind. But this and with this, we'll begin to make the turn into communion this, and this might be the most important of all, number four, Christian speech is, say it real loud, church. Christian speech is willing to lose. Christian speech is willing to show up and say what needs to be said, but it's not trying to control the outcome any longer of what is said. Think about what the psalmist says here in Psalm 15, four. The psalmist says of the righteous person that they are the kind of person that keeps an oath even when it even when it hurts, they're not trying to slip away from the consequences of standing by the truth or even better, revelation. The writer says that they triumphed over him. This is the saints at the end of history. They triumphed over the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And what? They did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. Do you know where all of the problems of our speech come from? They come from the problem of little Gabe Arndt. We keep trying to control the outcome of things with our speech. This is where all of the problems in your relationship with your spouse come from. Instead of speaking the truth in love to them, you keep trying to manipulate them with your little games. You're playing word games to influence them in the right direction. This is where your problem with your kids comes from. That instead of telling them the truth and telling them how you feel about them, you're trying to set up these games to get them to do what you want them to do. This is where the problem of our presence in society comes from. That instead of speaking the truth in love, we keep trying to influence our society to go over here. We have an idea of where it needs to go. We're trying to control things. And I have news for you, ladies and gentlemen. It is no part of the Christian vocation to control the outcome of things. And do you know why that is? Because God holds all things by the word of his might. And if we trust him, that means that we can live the way that we're called to live with our speech and surrender all things to him, just like, by the way, Jesus did. The living word in human flesh who came and made the good confession before Pontius Pilate surrendered his life up unto death and the father raised him from the dead and has been vindicating the cause of Jesus ever since. And if Jesus didn't need to control the outcome, neither do you. Can you receive that this morning? Do you stand to your feet and let's prepare our hearts for communion. This is a moment to search our hearts and to let the spirit wash over us and flush things out of us that need to be flushed out of us. And so church, I'll just invite you to let the spirit search you here. Probably everybody in this room, there was one moment or two moments where you just found yourself, you located yourself here. 
And so wherever you located yourself in the message, I just want you to begin to do business with the Lord. And so we say, search us, O God. We say, search us, O God. We pray that wherever our speech is false, that you'd burn that to the ground and make us a people of truth. We pray that wherever our speech is no longer full of grace, seasoned with salt, well, we pray that you would reduce it to the level of your love and your goodness. We pray, Lord, that where we have tried to control outcomes with our language, God, we ask that you would increase faith in us. That you'd help us trust that you're perfectly capable of doing your job and guiding the world around us to the place that you've intended it to go. So help us surrender to you. We make you king again in our lives. We name you Lord again of our lives. And we ask, may our speech rise to the level of your truth. So come, we pray among us. Come, we pray among us. Redeem us and sanctify us with your love. We're asking in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. I'm going to invite our communion service to come forward to serve communion this morning. We'll be dismissing row by row, and you'll come forward and receive your communion elements. Take them back to your seat. We're going to respond with this song of worship here, and then Pastor Brady is going to lead us to the table in just a moment. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God given for the people of God. Let's receive communion. And we 